Happy birthday, MIQ. We had no playbook for this. The Indian travel ban. Outraged and shocked. Super investments in Myanmar. Very far from ethical. Welcome to One News Inside Parliament. It's our weekly catch-up about the political stories that we've been covering on One News. I'm Jessica Much Mackay. I'm Mikey Sherman. And I'm Benedict Collins. Thanks for being with us today. We've actually got two weeks' worth of excitement and political stories to cram into one podcast today, so lucky us. We skipped last week because it was a Good Friday, and it was a good day for us because we were off and had a really good four-day weekend, which was... Um, really nice. I think it's been quite a busy start to the year. But should we kick off with our pits, peaks and interesting things? Who'd like to start? Shall I start? Sure. Okay. So my peak this week was for a story I did yesterday on one year, the one year anniversary of Managed Isolation as I went back through and had a look at a couple of the stories around that time. And it just, I found it really interesting. It blew my mind a bit that the way that we were talking about managed isolation, then it was actually a story that Mikey had done. It was when we were divided up into red teams and blue teams. So it must have been on one of the days that you were on and you'd talked about, um, you know, the government's brought in this new policy, which means that anyone landing in New Zealand will have to go into two for two weeks into a hotel paid for by the government and we'd been in that self-isolation phase. So remember how everyone went and stayed at home for a little while. And I just, it was just really interesting going back and hearing the language because the way that we talked about it was like, wow, this is so weird. And now MIQ, it's such a normal part of our language. And I just found it really interesting going back a year and just thinking how much has changed and evolved in that year. And Look at us, we've now done one year of managed isolation, one year where COVID's been a reality. So I just found it really interesting looking at that story. And I, and I think one of the things I noticed in your track um, last night saying, you know, it looks like there will be a um, MIQ will have a second birthday yeah. as well. Yeah. So I just think that uh, in the, let's say we get vaccinated, best case scenario at the end of the year, there's still going to be hot spots that we need to manage people coming in. So it just it's fascinating to think that we have to manage people through hotels for two years. Like imagine having that conversation with us in February last year. We would have just been like, okay, you know. I, d- I just found it. It's, I found it very interesting to it reflect. It seems like a lifetime ago, yeah, really. Um, but it wasn't even that long ago. That's why it's so fascinating just to hear you sort of take us back down memory lane. I mean, yeah, it feels like so much has happened since then. But it really has only been a year. I mean, managed isolation facilities have been such a key part of our sort of protection um, as as a country and our border control, if you like. And I guess that kind of um, swoops nicely perhaps into my pit of the week. Um, my pit of the week is that uh, I went to a protest outside of Parliament here earlier in the week and it was for the split families, um, basically all the migrant families who have been split from their, their loved ones um, since the borders shut and since COVID hit and it's been over a year now um, and it was really sad to speak to a lot of them, you know um, one guy I spoke to he left um, South Africa to come 
here for a job. He had his um, youngest baby was only three months old at the time and he hasn't seen her and he's talking about how, you know, he doesn't even know his daughter and his daughter doesn't know him and they're just desperate to get some sort of timeline from the government and I think that's probably where the government has been lacking for a lot of these families and you can understand it from the government's perspective as well because we've been dealing with the pandemic and we've had to get all the New Zealanders back first but now that we are entering a phase where we've just opened up a trans-Tasman bubble, we've got vaccines rolling out, it is time for those families who have spent so long apart from their loved ones to get a bit of sort of a, a timeline, if you like, so they know um, what they're aiming for, so that you know their families who are waiting overseas to come here um, have something to aim towards and look forward to. And I think it was disappointing, actually, um, at the Prime Minister's press conference where she announced the Trans Tasman bubble. In the same breath, she also said um, that the government would be decommissioning some of those MIQ facilities um, because they were for the low risk countries and they weren't necessarily needed anymore. Some would be put aside for, say, the Pacific Islands, um, but uh, some of them would be decommissioned. And I think that would have been heartbreaking for a lot of those migrant families. So I think that, you know, that's a big problem there for the government and they really need to address it for those people. So that's my pit this week. Mm. I guess my pit for the week would be um, really sad news about Kitty Allen, um, Minister, Labour MP, um, came um, announced this week that she got um, stage three cervical cancer, and um, you know is getting treatment in the hospital and is um, taking time out of. Um, Parliament to get treated. Yeah, lots of waves I think and ripples through Parliament on that mm-hmm. one. It was a big one. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to point out was around um, one of the bills that's been put forward by Kieran McAnulty around alcohol. Now, he's put this idea forward and it was on the on the coming off Easter weekend saying that we should be able to buy alcohol 365 days a week. A year. Yeah. <laughs> wow, she it's, really been, likes it's a been a long week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 365 days a year. And I think it's a really interesting topic because I can absolutely understand there are these weird anomalies where you can go and if you're eating food, you can have a glass of wine, and if you're not, you can't. But at the same time, I kind of feel like there are things that should be sacred, and I feel like Good Friday and Easter Sunday should be. And do we really need to buy alcohol on those days? Stock up the days before. Maybe my Catholic school upbringing has a bit of an impact on that. But I I just guess, I think, oh, do we really need to have alcohol every single day and access to it? And Benedict's answer, and I'm, I'm very sure Benedict will disagree with me on that one. So it's an interesting topic. But I just, I feel like... Uh, do we really need to? Well, it is a fascinating topic, right? And, mm. and, and then you look that there are kind of these weird laws where you, you have to order a main in order to have a drink. Yeah. And, um, one of our colleagues went out and they were told they had to order five sides if they wanted to have a drink or a main. Um, so they ended up drinking kombucha. And, and I kind of get it. Like it's, it's nice to have a few days a year where, where you're kind of, you know, not all your shops are open. People get to have a rest. On the flip side, I also think, hey, you don't get that many public holidays a year, you know, days off fr- from work. And then, like on three of them, pretty much, you can't go and have a drink. 
And that's okay. That's and what about the supermarkets, <laughs> though? <laughs> now, the supermarkets was my little thing because, you know, it felt like we were going back into lockdown, everybody rushing to the supermarket on the Thursday night and the Saturday night because they were obviously going to be closed on the Friday and the Sunday. It just felt like everyone was stocking up for their level four lockdowns again, everybody cramming into the supermarket. And I was just like, on a, on a long weekend, it's like, man, you don't want to be spending time in the checkout line because they're so big, why, the why are we doing this? And the che- you know supermarket managers, they should get Good Friday and Easter Sunday off. Some of them might want to work and make that money, <laughs> get that double time, time and a half. I don't know, but um, yeah, maybe. Just, yeah, standing in the lines, I was just like, "What the heck is this all about?" Yeah, it brings it brings back slow rocking in the corner motions about everyone rushing to buy things. Yeah, and speaking of protests, my pit peak for the week. Do you like that uh, that little... It was nice. That bodes well for the rest of the podcast. Um, My peak for the week is the uh, school strike for climate change um, happening right here, right now, coming to Parliament um, and, uh, you know, seeing all those young people um, get motivated and get out there. It's got to be a good thing always. Um, Good to get it back uh, on the agenda here. Um, And... I just want to read out some of the uh, some of the uh, quotes from on the placards um, that people are carrying this uh, school strike. Uh, that this is a planetary planetary emergency. That's one of them. Another, my other placard caught fire. You can't eat money. And this one, one of my favourites. You'll die of old age. We'll die of climate change. Grim. Nice. Grim. Yeah, yeah. A little Grim bit reality, depressing. guys. I also just like the idea that it teaches a whole bunch of school kids the power of protest and I think that um, that's a really cool message to get out to them I think one of the things <clears throat> excuse me one of the things that's so valuable in New Zealand is our respect um, and the right to protest and he- get out there and have your voice and I just like that a whole group of school kids get that I think the only thing we protested at school was you know skirt length and whether you could wear socks you know rolled up or what you know what I mean like I just think to have a protest thing on something big is really good mm. not that I did those protests at I, school Mikey, just FYI <laughs> I, I thought your peak was going to be your um, 40 foot tall billboard of you up in, up in Auckland Mikey no? it, it was but was she it? doesn't want to sound like she's bragging so shouldn't that have been one of ours probably yeah, yeah. <laughs> coming to a billboard near you folks <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, well, since we're talking about um, members' bills, another interesting one got pulled um, out of the biscuit tin, drawn from the biscuit tin um, at Parliament last week. Matt Ducey um, bringing a bill trying to ban the importation of synthetic artificial urine that people are using to pass Who knew? drug tests. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I think a, a fair bit does get bought to um, get past those drug tests. I think he missed a bit of a trick here, though. It would have been great to see a members' bill bringing in drug testing and, and and sanctions for um, MPs and, and politicians here at Parliament like we have for beneficiaries. So I think he's missed a bit of a trick there. I thought you were going to make some joke there. That's what I was preparing for with my face, but we just went on to something yeah. quite serious. Um, keeping with the serious thing, we've had quite a few developments this week in terms of the Australian bubble. Um, MIQ facilities passing their anniversary. We've had vaccine updates this week as well. Should we start off maybe with the vaccine stuff? Let's go through a little bit of that and then flip to the Aussie bubble. So 
Over the last fortnight, we've seen several ministers getting their jab, rolling up their sleeves and taking one for the team. Nice line that, isn't it? Um, we've seen Chris Hipkins, Aisha Verrill, um, and demonstrating that it's safe, demonstrating that uh, they're prepared to take it and showing some leadership on it. We saw um, Peony Henare uh, do it on Wednesday, um, and I think we'll keep seeing a few ministers do that. So there's been that push. Um, there've also been uh, a few interesting developments in terms of when um, you know reporting of um, vaccines. Because one of the things that we pushed last week is the government saying, "Oh, look, we're we're doing pretty well. You know, we're getting um, a really high percentage of where we were planning to be." And we're saying, "Well, hang on a second. We want to know how many you're planning." And then we want to know how many you've done. And we want that daily because this is a really important vaccine rollout for New Zealand. And we want to be able to measure you on what you're saying So they, you're they doing. did launch that dashboard on, on Wednesday, right? Yeah, where they, so they're promising to put out more information on a more regular basis. But it just feels like it's been quite a few weeks in the making. And it was something that we pushed for last week and they said it's coming, it's coming. And, and it's good that now it has. But it just feels like we need to be able to measure you on your promises. And it's such an important policy to get right. So that was one of the things that I thought was really interesting. Did you guys have any more vaccine... I think it'll be good to see how much detail comes onto that dashboard and how often they do, um, you know, refresh it and, and update mm. it because that is going to be crucial and they have been lacking in that area, I agree. Um, the fact that they didn't have it ready to go from day one, I get it, you know, everything's moving quickly and, you know, so they're standing up things as it as it happens, um, but, you know, it's it's a big it's a big one, especially when we're able to get sort of daily test numbers and, and, and all of those things. Uh, you, you just got to question why we haven't been able to get the vaccine numbers on the daily as yet. And a dashboard is, is good, but it's certainly not a daily thing. And I think the answer is, is it's been too, it's quite slow at the beginning. And I think that's why they haven't want, wanted to shout about it. Yeah, so even, you, uh, uh, you know, uh, in terms of information and not really coming out very well, like um, one of Penny Hinare, Associate Health Minister's big points the other day when he was getting vaccinated was that they need to train more Māori vaccinators to work in Māori health providers around the country because that's where a lot of Māori want to go and get vaccinated. But then it was like, oh, how many do you need to train? How many are you short? You know, they can't really provide any 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 detail around that as well. I think it's interesting too what we've been seeing, um, particularly overseas with that AstraZeneca vaccine, so right? So interesting, so, today's now, development. Yeah, so I think under 30s, uh, yesterday, in, yesterday out of the UK, sorry, they, were, yeah. they were saying, you know, under 30s um, shouldn't be getting getting this vaccine. I think there's um, other moves for, for other age groups in other countries now as well. More and more concerns being raised about the AstraZeneca one. It looks like we've kind of struck the jackpot there with Pfizer. And today, Australia has said, oh, we don't really want to do AstraZeneca. We need more Pfizer yeah. trying to get yeah. more in because the one that they're manufacturing there is the AstraZeneca. And that's... that's I, I think you're right. I think we've backed the right horse and it will be really interesting to see where that advice and where that expertise came from in getting that. And I think that's why we need to be empathetic to those people who do hold reservations about the vaccine, especially Māori and minority communities because you know, it's, it's, it has come out fast, it's it's unknown and, and 
you know, Māori in particular have experienced a poor health system in the past, and so if something's going to go wrong, they already feel like they're going to be at the back of the queue. They already feel like they're going to be sort of, you know, at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to, you know, treatment for anything that goes wrong. So that hesitancy is a real thing, and that's why we need that education out there. And that's why it's so surprising that you hear the Minister Penny Hinare talk about the fact that they need to train up more Māori health providers to deliver the vaccine. Mm. I mean, how come they didn't get all of this sorted last yeah. year when we were sitting in level four lockdown, when they knew that a vaccine would come one day? Why haven't they gotten the numbers and, and you know identified workers on the front line who are able and capable of doing these jobs? Why is he t- raising the alarm bells now? It just blows my mind. Because one of the key things is we don't have enough trained Māori nurses. And what it's meant is to be able to have people give the vaccination. They've had to allow health practitioners who aren't necessarily qualified as nurses to be able to give the vaccine. And that's absolutely fine in these situations. But I also agree that I think I'm surprised that the government hasn't been doing more to reassure and educate and inform the public. Yep, sure, we can wheel out a few ministers and they can get the jab and, oh, we're all fine and that's great. And that's part of it, absolutely. But let's get some education campaigns. Let's get some ads out there like we've seen with COVID-19. Let's get some Facebook um, ads going. Let's push the social media because, yes, it's only in July, but a lot of people have been already making up their minds. And I think that you can't just wait until... Until it's right there, you need to. People need to be having these conversations. They need the information out there. And when we go and interview people on the streets, I think for us, it's a no-brainer that we will get vaccinated. But we forget that when you go out and about and ask people, a lot of people are hesitant, if not absolutely against taking a vaccine. And I think that it's it's really important that the government gets going on that quickly um, to get inf- the correct information out there. Yeah, we had another case, um, community case this week. Um, MIQ worker, security guard, 24-year-old, who'd been working at the, um, I get it, was it the Mercure? Mercure in the, Auckland, yeah. In, in Auckland, um, unvaccinated. Still, yeah. And seems like... Uh, Sometimes they don't even know whether they're, um, the workers on at the border, you know, on those frontline positions, have, have got their vaccines. And 15 minutes before the news last night, um, we were scrambling to get the information to our reporter in Auckland who was doing the live cross. Um, the Ministry of Health put out a statement saying that, because um, Dr Bloomfield had said he hadn't refused to yeah. take the vaccine. Yeah. And then they released information um, at 5.45 saying that he'd actually had two appointments Slot, you know, slotted mm. in and and scheduled, but hadn't been able to make those, and that's why he hadn't been vaccinated. But it just feels like these guys are at the front line. This is basic stuff. If he, sh- you know, someone's got to be monitoring you know, this, right? Monitoring and, it, and, and also and hustling it, for him to yeah. get it. Like he's he is needs it the most, and let's get him in to get him vaccinated. Whatever and if he doesn't want to get it, him. move yeah. him off the front line. Yeah. I just don't know why they don't just send in the vaccinators into these MIQ facilities, and when you walk in the door for work on Monday, boom, yeah. jab you in the arm. <laughs> Done. Okay. You can't miss that appointment. Are you, are you comfortable with democracy as well? Should we just get rid of that too? We can just have dictators. It's no I problem. Just, like, yeah. People have to make their way all the way into some clinic out somewhere, and yeah, yeah. you know, it's just easier just to go to where all the work I, I think are. we should just watch and ourselves going to the office once we get the vaccines, yeah. 
Hey, and um, big news yesterday as well. The government um, shut down travel from India for the yeah. next couple of weeks. A temporary suspension there. Um, COVID-19 is just going absolutely rampant um, throughout India at the moment. I think in the last 24 hours, they'd had 120,000 cases. Which is mind-boggling. And, and so the problem for us, right, is that Travellers, Kiwi citizens, Kiwi residents coming back from India, they're passing their pre-departure tests, but they have to go through, a lot of them are going through Mumbai or Delhi, and the coronavirus, COVID-19 is just so rampant there. They're basically picking it up on their way to the air. You know, on their way to the aeroplane, so they're passing those tests. By the time they get here, coming down on the Emirates flight out of Dubai, they're all testing positive. Um, yesterday we had not all of them, but we had 17 new cases. Um, so, so the government slammed on the brakes, put on this temporary suspension um, for the next couple of weeks, trying to figure out what it can do about it. It's not really too sure yet. They're wondering if they can do like rapid COVID tests at the airport in India or temperature checks to stop them getting on those planes or, or maybe up in Dubai to stop them getting on those planes to come back. But, you know, unprecedented for them to stop Kiwi citizens coming back, given what we were seeing, you know, a, a year ago where, you know, we had lots of people coming back with COVID. They, they never took that step. They ruled it out. And then yesterday they've done it. And, you know, um, we, we talked to um, one Indian community leader in, in Auckland who was just, you know, livid with what the government has done here. Because last week I did a story on this issue because those numbers were starting to tick up. We had sort of um, half a dozen yeah. each day coming through and always on that day zero or day one testing, which means they arrive with it effectively. And one of the concerns from some of the experts experts, some experts were saying that perhaps they're getting the test but they were maybe fraudulent or not and we put that to the um, Prime Minister on I think it was Monday last week and said look what's happening, she said no look there's no evidence of any fraud but it's so rampant that they're getting it en route and they're picking it up at the airport and I just think it's such an interesting it's been I feel like it's been snowballing and clicking up and clicking up and it's just become an intolerable number for the government to have all of the the people, the New Zealanders, returning with this. Should we... Sorry, did you want to add I just or? think you've got to feel for those New Zealanders who are now stuck in India, even though the the, the um, closure of the border to them is a temporary one at this stage. It would be scary if you were in a com- country that, you know, the virus is rampant over there. You want to come home. Now we're saying, hey, you can't. Like, these are New Zealand citizens and residents. Yeah, I but get they've it. had a year. They've had a year, but then also we never know the, the circumstances That's of right. the person. You yeah. know, you just yeah. don't know what they've, what they've been going through or what they've had to deal with over there. Or they had to return and for I, an And I do wonder mm. if, if this is the government, oh, it is, you know, buying it some time because it's worried yeah. that it cannot manage the situation and there needs to be questions as to why the government feels as though it's unable to manage a situation like that. Or, or why it hasn't been in. able to bring in some of these measures that it's weighing up already. What is it in the next two weeks just that you really... more to a jet park like hotel? Well that's what they're thinking about doing. Yeah. They're thinking about setting up a dedicated facility, right, just just to take in those Indian And But that also raises questions around, you know, Ardoon decommissioning some of those other facilities, citing the fact that those were only able to be used by those coming in from low-risk countries. Why were we using facilities that were clearly not up to a standard where they could take people from high-risk countries? Why would we put that big risk 
in any facility like that yeah. in the first place. Like that beggars belief that yeah. we had facilities, MIQ facilities that weren't good enough to to house people from high risk countries, and yet we were using them anyway. When we're talking about a quote unquote tricky virus, like when she said that, I, I couldn't believe it. And this comes under the umbrella of widening our bubble and joining up with Australia. So we're entering a very fascinating new phase, as the Prime Minister called it, of COVID-19. We will be able to travel to and from Australia, quarantine-free, and it will be on a state-by-state basis. And it will just be fascinating to see um, how this plays out. I think for a lot of people, it's going to be a massive relief. They will be reunited with family. For some people, they might just say, oh, I'd quite like to go on a little holiday and head across. Um, so I think it's it's really interesting to see how this plays out. A lot of balls in the air for the government now with this trans-Tasman bubble, yep. you know, state by state even, so, and then the, the vaccine rollout and, you know, MIQ issues with India, so many things going on, a lot of pressure. Yeah. Let's mm. let's move on. Um, talking of pressure, um, you have been putting some on this week in regard to the um, Myanmar story um, that you that you did earlier in the week. Do you want to walk us through that? Yeah, so we um, got a bit of a tip that um, the New Zealand Super Fund was investing in a company um, that's pretty controversial. It's an Indian um, multinational company called Adani, and they've been um, basically working, um, building a port in Myanmar, and as part of building that port, they're paying millions and millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, um, to the Myanmar Economic Corporation, which is basically a front company for the Myanmar military, which is currently um, you know, slaughtering their own civilians after overthrowing the government there. Um, so, yeah, we spoke um, to, to a range of um, groups. We spoke to the Greens and to um, some Kiwi Myanmar people who are in, in New Zealand, Kiwi Myanmar people, um, who were, you know, who were just um, appalled that um, the super fund was investing in this, calling on them to divest immediately. Now, the super fund, it's, it's interesting because this has been happening a bit lately. Um, they said basically, um, uh, you know, they are world leaders when it comes to um, responsible investment, um, and that that it would be wrong for them to sort of reactively drop a um, company that they're investing in. They point out they only have about a million dollars invested in um, in this company Adani out of a fifty-five billion dollar fund. Um, but you know, following the story, the National Party they called on the Super Fund and ACC to appear before a select committee to talk about what sort of decision making goes on when it comes to you know the ethics of their investments. It, you know, and it is it is pretty extraordinary that the the, the guardians of the Super Fund they're called you know say you know it'd be wrong for them to reactively just dump a um, company because it comes into controversy or you know gets caught up in issues like this. But you know, I, I think that view it differently if it was their families, you know, getting shot in the head by the military. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what they have to say when they um, appear before a select committee, which they said they're open to do as well. Yeah, and aren't we lucky that we live in a society where those decision makers are pulled before a select committee to answer those questions and hopefully we get some fulsome and enlightening answers. Yeah, and, and Gauri's Gardaman, she told us that um, she thought the New Zealand Super Fund's response to One News was absolutely atrocious. She thinks it's deeply offensive that they say, um, you know, that, that they're satisfied that they invest ethically. And she's on the committee, isn't she? On this one that Yeah, depend, yeah uh, 
depending which one they got called in front of, but she's on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, so, which, which I suspect that'd be the one that'd be appearing. So in it'll of. be interesting to see how that translates yeah. to her questions when, mm. when it arises. Really interesting story. I thought it's fascinating to dig into that. Shall we also touch on another story that you've been digging around on? Um, you've had a had a little bit of a busy week, I think. Um, do you want to touch on that and share with us what you've got so Yeah, so this far? is a story that'll be um, coming out tonight, so kind of breaking news for us. But I'll just received back a fascinating official information at response from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade um, regarding all the countries that we've been sending military and weapons exports to. And this kind of follows on from the stories that I was looking at with Air New Zealand secretly helping the Saudi military, um, which the government knew nothing about until we told them. Um, anyway, so MFAT in the last three years have, has issued more than 250 permits for military or weapon exports to countries. Um, we have been exporting these items and we, we're still trying to figure out exactly what we've been sending where, but we already knew we've been sending them repeatedly to Saudi Arabia, um, you know, which is fueling the war in Yemen. We've got Jacinda Ardern, you know, weekly, monthly, you know, saying how concerned she is about human rights with the Uyghurs in China, um, what China's doing in Hong Kong. We've been sending China weapons. We've been sending the Russia weapons. We've been sending the Israelis weapons, Indonesians weapons. I mean, Rwandans. most of the most of the um, countries up in, involved in the crisis in Yemen, we're sending them. Um, uh, you know, weapons or um, mil- military items. Some of the stuff I know that we have been sending is stuff that like helps them um, target in their mortar rounds on people, makes them more accurate so they can hit their targets. Um, but that's that's with the Saudis. So around 250 times we've we've given permits for military exports in the last three years. You guys know the answer to this because I raised it in the office before, but we've only refused one. We've declined one permit, and that was to Saudi Arabia, and that was after the Saudi government sent a team of assassins and chopped up the journalist Jamal Khashoggi in their Turkey consulate. That was the that was the one thing that tipped him fat over into this is inappropriate. But yeah, so some pretty I think big ethical um, questions around what. MFAT is allowing to happen here. Um, we're going to put some questions to the Prime Minister today, see whether she's comfortable about it. Also tell you just quickly, a couple of months ago when we did that Air New Zealand story, the government said they were going to carry out a review into MFAT and its export control permits. They still haven't appointed a reviewer. Yeah, fascinating, eh? Yeah. Well, keep digging and you'll we'll hear more about that tonight. We'll leave it here. That was One News Inside Parliament, our weekly catch-up about the political stories we have been covering. We're on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook and available each week on One News Online. And check us out on your favourite podcasting app. We'll see you next week. 